Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, everyone. As I mentioned last week, we're taking a brief hiatus and revisiting some of our favorite episodes until we return. Today's flashback features author, activist, actress, producer, model, and top chef host Padma Lakshmi. As always, thank you for listening to Unqualified. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. I know that you have been so active in the human rights world. Am I correct? Did it start with with the ACLU and, and then you became a goodwill ambassador? Yes. Well, I had a women's health foundation that I started with my doctor for endometriosis about 10 years ago. And so I've been doing that work in women's reproductive health and also like the politics of it, frankly, you know, and then that led me soon after the election to the ACLU because I saw how much immigrants were being vilified in this country. And there was so much negativity and just misinformation and racism coming out of the White House that I wanted to do something, not only because I'm an immigrant too, but because I just thought it was wrong. It was always my feeling that immigrants really built this nation, whether they're Scottish or Iranian or, you know, whatever the newest wave is, right? Syrian. But I just didn't feel it was right. So I started working with the ACLU and I became an artist ambassador for them for immigration rights, as well as for women's rights and women's reproductive rights. And then that led me to the UN. And I've been working closely with the ACLU since early 2017, like right after the inauguration. And then the United Nations appointment came about last year. I have worked with the UN before. I used to work with UNIFEM years and years ago, which is now called UN Women. My sector of the United Nations is the development program. They have UN Women, UNICEF, which is for children. Then they have the refugees that program, which is also very big. And then they have the development program. So those are the four sort of subgroups under the UN umbrella. And the development program is the largest of that. With you talking about your humanitarian work, because I have to compare it with the humanitarian work I've done lately. I I sorted some laundry this morning. That's very humanitarian. Cleaned out the lint screen, um, loaded the dishwasher, but not very well. But Pama, <laughs> you emigrated as a child with your mother. Yes. How was her experience from your eyes being new to America? Well, I saw her make a completely new life for us out of scratch. The reason that we came to America is because my mom had a very turbulent marriage, uh, which was arranged. And we separated from my father after I was about one. 
And then she divorced my father when I was two and then came to America. And then I stayed in India and came over here when I was four. So from the ages of two to four, I didn't really see either of my parents. I was taken care of by my grandparents in India. And so when I did join her at the age of four, I saw her work really hard. I saw her, you know, go to work in the morning, come back after a full shift at the hospital with her feet killing her. You know, I remember her going to night school for her master's degree. And, you know, our household was a female-led household in New York City. And so I grew up um, very cognizant of how incredibly hardworking and amazing not only my mother was, but a lot of the people around us. I grew up seeing immigrants from all different countries in New York be really part of the fabric of the community and active players in shaping the economic sectors and the social sectors and all of that. You know, I guess I had the benefit of growing up in New York City and seeing so many different kinds of faces, speaking different languages, all working together, cab drivers, nurses, surgeons, lawyers, school teachers, what have you. So this idea that Americans needed to be white and America was only for certain immigrants and not those from shithole countries, you know, really upset me. And that's what made me get involved with the ACLU. And then my new show, Taste the Nation, is really directly inspired by that work with the ACLU. I was able to watch your first episode, which is fantastic, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that, but I am intrigued. Were you resentful as as a teenager that your mom worked so hard? Because I think it's hard to have perspective on that until you grow up and you understand just how hard people work. But did you guys ever have like a tumultuous... No, I felt sorry for my mom. I could see, I could see every waking moment of my day how hard she worked. I really resented her moving to Los Angeles, you know, sometime when I was a preteen or a tween, I guess is what they call it now. I did not want to move to California because in California, everybody looked the same. Everybody was white until I, you know, kind of got to high school. And then there were a lot of Latinos at my school. But I also didn't have the freedom I had in New York City. In New York City, I had a skateboard and I had a pair of roller skates and I was going everywhere on my own. I had pocket money. I was a latchkey kid. So I had free reign on the Upper East Side to do what I wanted. And then the minute we got in LA, I was like, I needed my mom to take me everywhere. And at first my mom didn't even know how to drive, you know, so she would take the bus to work herself. And I was just kind of locked in my little apartment with her. But then in fifth grade, I got a Huffy bike and that made it better. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't resent her for, for working a lot. What choice was there? I didn't know any different. I knew she worked hard. I knew she had to count her pennies. I knew that it was hard for her when back to school came around to get me all the clothes or, you know, whatever kids need. And so I, I really didn't ever resent her for that. I resented her for other shit when I was a teenager, but not for that. Was she insistent that you have or, or learn the same work ethic? I mean, my my mom, who's not an immigrant, at times I think she was transferring some of her uh, goals in life a little bit onto me, which made me also believe that I could achieve goals. So I wouldn't change anything about that. But 
for her, like the the mantra of don't ever depend on a man. Like you need to make your own money. Um, mm-hmm. And that has been very definitive for me. I think I've probably lost some money because of that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that was important to me. And I wonder how much of an influence she was to your drive and your your sense of self. You know, I saw my mom who worked really hard, but also loved what she did as a nurse and was a really benevolent force in thousands of people's lives, one by one at the time of great vulnerability for them. But I did also see that, you know, her choices were curtailed by her financial situation. And so I never wanted to be in that position. I always, you know, wanted to make sure that I had control of my own life, of being independent, and I had never seen any different. So, you know, that was not really an issue for me. I didn't, you know, I didn't think that some prince was going to come and save me. Well, I think that that's very apparent in how hard you work. We all work hard. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about Taste the Nation. It's a great show. And I love the concept of uniting people through, I guess, like the simple necessity and appreciation that we have as humans of food and how it's reflective on different cultures. I love how you speak about, you know, corn and and flour. First of all, let me tell our our listeners and please chime in Padma. Padma's new show on Hulu airs June 19th 19th. and it's called Taste the Nation. And your first episode, you go to El Paso and then Juarez. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating to hear from, you know, restaurant owners and cooks and people from the community in El Paso and Juarez. You have people who have different political beliefs And they work together every day. You know, one of the reasons that, as I said earlier, I wanted to do the show is because you heard a lot of different things being said or a lot of different narratives about immigrant populations, but you didn't hear from the immigrants themselves. And so the story was being shaped a lot of the time by people who had no idea what they were talking about, i.e. President Trump, Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon at all. And so I just wanted to give the microphone to people who don't always get it. And I wanted these immigrant communities to tell their own story themselves. And also, you know, it bothered me that there was some arbitrary notion that some people were, were, were American enough and others weren't. And it seemed to me that there was an inherent prejudice in that. And so I really wanted to examine what our actual country looked like. Like, who, you know, who lives in America? Not just like, who are the most people who live in America, but who actually lives here in all its like specificity and nitty gritty? Like, who are the new Americans? And who are some of the older generations of Americans? Like the Germans, like, let's look at that. Because a lot of the tales that we tell ourselves as a culture are really short-sighted and don't take into account some very factual history, you know? Right. And so like there were all kinds of things that I learned just in the process of making the show, but that I thought that were really worthy of bringing to life. This is a political show. It's not just about food and travel, although there is certainly a lot of that. Food is the language that people are used to hearing me speak. And so I felt that it would be the best instrument with which to prove my point. And when I was working with the ACLU, I would, you know, 
give you my opinion on the immigration crisis. And I would use the personal details of my own life, my own immigrant experience, to illustrate the points I was trying to make. And that was fine as I got my feet wet and stuff. But after a year, I just got sick of talking about myself, frankly. And so, you know, I wanted to find out what the experience was like for other immigrants in, in different parts of the country and in different places. And so that was really the point of the show. You know, it's called Taste the Nation, which is a riff on, you know, Face the Nation. So it is about food. It's about immigrant food. And it's also about using food as almost a Trojan horse to embed myself into these communities and get to know what daily life is like, apart from the policy that's coming out of Washington, apart from the newspapers and the TV shows where everything's kind of fuzzy at the edges. Like, what is daily life like for that cook at that car wash? You know, when does she get up? How far does she have to walk? Um, How does she feel about somebody wanting to build a wall? You know, and this guy who's a Trump supporter and owns this car wash and is her employer and has been sitting in that rocking chair literally for 63 years. (laughs) And, you know, why is he a Trump supporter when all of his employees, who he says are like family to him, you know, are obviously suffering at the hands of this policy? So those kind of, you know, nuances, as you put it, but also complexities, they really interested me because life is never black and white. You know, it's always layered and nuanced and, and there's more than one side to the story. And for so long, and I'm sure you've had this happen to you because you're an actor in LA who happens to be female, you know, like for so long, the narrative about me was incorrect or not really accurate. And I know what that feels like. And For these communities, I wanted them to show us who they were in all of their humanity. And I wanted to prove my point, the point I'd always had, that immigration is good. It is a good thing. It is a good thing economically. It is a good thing culturally. And it is certainly a good thing gastronomically. Because I'll tell you what, all the cool, interesting things happening in food right now, they're happening in those ethnic enclaves. They're happening in those immigrant communities. You know, if you look at just the way that we order food or what Americans like to eat, you know, it's it's not meatloaf and mashed potatoes. It's pad thai and tacos and sushi, you know, whatever. But it's all of those things. And all of those groups of people have had a very big hand in making this country what it is. And I think that's interesting. I think even like the, thinking about the term minority, it's the subconscious implication is that contribution has been minor, yeah. which it's of course been major. And whether it's music, food, culture, intellectual, yeah. I love that your show, without hitting you over the head at all, it humanizes contribution, mm-hmm. you know, in a very tactile way. I wanted to ask you about the idea of colonialism and. And like, is there an undercurrent of racism in what's deemed exotic? Mm-hmm. Like the embracing of spices and educating the palate to new flavors? Mm-hmm. You talk about food that we might all know, but you're acknowledging the origins of these foods because, you know, often there's an arrogance of discovery. Well, yeah, this is something I've obviously thought about a lot. You know, I am somebody who celebrates different cultures and spices from all over the world, as you know, you know, we've talked about this a lot, 
when you were with me in Seattle. I think like, I think it's okay to, to borrow and enjoy and revel in another person's culture. Like I'm always pleased when someone is curious about Indian food or Indian culture. I mean, I want to share my culture and I want to find out about different cultures around the world. It is the basis for all of my writing and work in food. Here's the problem though. What happens is you, you know, like this notion of new American food, right? That was a terminology that people used to describe, you know, what kind of cuisine white chefs who had big fancy restaurants were cooking. What does that mean? New American food to me means same old white food, which has French technique, but using sumac and curry powder and, you know, chipotle in their very white food. So using those things like borrowing and begging from other cultures that they've been exposed to. Like the arrogance of inventiveness or something. Right, right. And to me, that's fine. That's what America is. Well, American food is this wonderful blend of influences from all the cultures that have come and settled in our country over generations. And it's an organic, ever-evolving, ever-shape-shifting thing. And if we can all agree on that, then there's a lot of room to enjoy every spice and every dish by all of us. What I have a problem with is that, you know, things don't get any of the play they deserve until some white person discovers it. And all of a sudden, Eureka, they've discovered turmeric. And hey, let's put it, you know, in everything. Let's make a smoothie out of it. Let's put it in our soup. It's like the whole thing about rebranding broth as bone broth. Broth is made from both. So I don't understand what the difference between regular broth and bone broth is. $7 maybe. Yes. Yes. So it happens with major publications. Like you need to just look at the names of who all the editors are of your major food magazines and major newspapers, food sections. And it's often white people. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to write you a recipe for Guyanese curry. And it's like, well, why don't you ask your housekeeper who takes care of your kids and has been cooking your Guyanese curry to show us? Because I'm pretty sure that's where you got it from. And again, it's not wrong for that white person. It's not wrong for me to write about you know, Mexican food or Chinese food, even though I'm Indian, as long as I give credit where credit is due. Right. As long as I say, I went to Jamaica, I did this photo shoot, I was there for a week. And, you know, rather than eat in my fancy hotel, I loved this jerk chicken that I got on the corner and they made it in a drum and I could feel the heat and this is who made it and this is what their life is like. As long as you cite your source material, You know, and then so a lot of times you'll see recipes that, you know, will have coconut milk and turmeric in them. And all of a sudden they're just, they're not identified as curries. And it's like, of course, this is a curry. You know, you didn't just come on this after thousands of years. And so that's also one of the points of the show is to let the people who are the originators of that cuisine, at least the ones who brought it to our country, Mm them explain their cuisine, you know, mm-hmm. rather than gentrified and regurgitated in a package that makes it go viral, you know? Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I thought it was fascinating that uh, I can't remember his name, but a uh, chef on, on your show. He was the young chef who didn't love to use flour. Emiliano, yeah. Right. And I thought that take was fascinating. I love the idea of honoring a tradition and a culture that has maybe not felt as honored in in this country of America as they should for like everything Mm -hmm. that they have contributed. I'm still thinking about the idea of xenophobia and its relationship to food. Well, they occupy different sectors of your brain. Right. But they shouldn't. Food is political. Right. So that's the point. Like, you know, remember when all this family separation was going on at the border and, you know, all these people were protesting when Ted Cruz was sitting at a Mexican restaurant. It's like he's happy to eat tacos, but he doesn't give a shit about the people who are making his tacos. So that's the thing. Like, we seem to think that they're are some people whose humanity has less value than other people's humanity. And we do it at a national level because it's kind of in the abstract and we don't have to be held accountable for it. So what I mean by that is, you know, you and I are normal people. So if it was a rainy night and some woman knocked on your door and had a baby in her arms, like, you would, you know, you would let her in. If she said, help, I, you know, my car broke down and I don't know where to go and it's pouring rain and my baby's hungry, you would say, come in, let me give you a towel. Let me give your kid an extra t-shirt that's dry. Here, we have some leftovers, you know, from dinner, you're welcome to them. And you would let her have a place that was warm and dry to sit, right? Right. Because that's what human decency commands. But somehow we forget that human decency when we're talking about our borders. And and that's wrong because this is a land of plenty. We have enough for everybody. We really do. And if you look at the patterns of economic downturn and upturn, especially like in a city like New York, where we do have a lot of immigration, and then you look at periods when immigration went up and down, you will see that the times when we actually had a lot of immigration is the same time when the economy started to pick up. Every type of worker is needed in our economy. You know, the surgeon to the gardener and everything in between. I love it that you do stress the the idea, which I believe is true, that we do have plenty. We have a lot of resource here in our country in terms of agriculture or, you know, geography. So this idea should be almost nurtured and and cultivated. And we should really appreciate that we have a special country in that way. And I love it that your show really does address those ideas. And you're not judgmental. You know, people feel free to express their opinions. I, I love that it really accomplished the promise of your show. Thank you. You know, I think the coolest thing, look, the reason that America is world dominant is not because of our military. It's not because of our capitalism, although that helps. But our capitalism, which allows our military dominance, again, has been built on the backs of immigrant labor and even our pop culture. So like, 
you know, everything from Michael Jackson to, you know, NBA stars. Every community has contributed to the glamour and, and mystique of American culture. And American pop culture, from Coca-Cola to McDonald's, like it or not, is world dominating. And it's because as a culture, we're able to take the best things from each of the cultures that live here and spin that into something wholly new and uniquely American. And that is what makes us cool. That's what separates us from you know most of the countries in the world. And we should understand that. We should understand that this is one of our biggest benefits. And it's actually like a point of pride and a source of strength for us. Yeah. It's not something that we should be threatened by. And I think there's a lot of fear mongering right now out of this administration. They're gonna come here, they're gonna, you know, rape your women and, and, and murder, they're gonna bring gangs, they're gonna take your jobs. No, they're not. They're not. If they were, then that little lady that you see cooking the, you know, um, chili rellenos, if, they, if that was so, she wouldn't be able to walk across the border every day and keep her job for 36 years. You know why? Because there's no one who can do it like her. Yeah. And every kid that's grown up in El Paso has gone there at high school and that's a landmark and has beautiful memories of going there after football games or the prom to get, you know, burritos late at night or whatever. So I think that what people are trying to use to threaten us to be afraid of immigrants is actually the very thing we should enthusiastically embrace. I believe that. I love that. I could. I feel like I could talk with you for hours about all of this. May I ask you some life questions now? Yes. Okay. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Ooh, probably mint chocolate chip. I like that too. I also like coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, coffee ice cream. Pistachio is really good. Pistachio is good. So this this next question is, what is your favorite meal? But I really feel like I have to tailor that specifically to you. That's so hard. Depends on the day. What would you cook for your daughter? How old is your daughter now? She's 10, going on 25. <laughs> oh, my God. She was so tiny when you met her. She was three. I, I know. Think. I was just thinking about that, and I was pregnant. Yeah. And Jack, really, yeah, really Jack really is now seven. I know ready to pop. I'm trying to think like, what, what is my favorite meal? Well, I know what she loves. One of my favorite recipes that she loves is chili verde. So sometimes we make it with meat and sometimes we make it with beans or both, but it's a green chili with tomatillos. And that's one of her favorite recipes that I cook. She also loves my ragu and my tacos and my noodles. Oh, you're making me so hungry. What were you eating earlier? It looked like cereal, but I think that was just wishful thinking. We made crab curry yesterday because we're right at the beach. And so we went and we caught the crabs, blue crabs. Then we rinsed them outside. Then we boiled them. Then I made Krishna's dad peel them off oh my and God. take all the meat. That's the only way. He's really good uh, at it. That's a good skill. Yeah. So... He took all the meat out and then um, I made like a shredded crab curry. It's it's like a crab salad really, but it's dry and it just has fresh shredded coconut that we found at King Cullen over here and just has like spices like chili and cumin. It's really easy to make actually because you just whiz everything in the blender. The hardest part is finding fresh coconut and then you just 
cook that in a pan with a little bit of oil for half an hour on really low heat until all the water is absorbed. And that's it. And I was just having that with plain rice. It's so good. That sounds incredible. Okay, that's all I'll think about for the rest of this conversation. Um, Okay, who has influenced your career the most? Who has influenced my career the most? MFK Fisher, the writer MFK Fisher. She writes about food. She was a New Yorker writer. She died in the 90s. She was also a humorist, right? She's funny. She, her first big cookbook during World War II was called How to Cook a Wolf. And it's a great book. And so if anyone's interested, there's a beautiful compilation of all her writing called The Art of Eating, which is a great book. And she's just such a fine writer. Like she could be writing about ball bearings and be like, oh my God, they're shining around, you know? <laughs> so I, I really loved her writing when I was first discovering it in my 20s and, and Calvin Trillin. I mean, writers influence my, my work more than anybody else because I didn't really see anybody doing what I do on TV until I did it, you know? There weren't that many cooking shows. Julia Child. That's right. You know, I watched that. But other than that, I really didn't see anybody doing what I do right now. It wasn't a thing. Right. What is the best or worst advice you've ever been given? Well, there's two pieces of really great advice that I've been given. One is push against the open door. That is to say, if an opportunity comes to you, it may not be the first thing that you thought you should do for your career, but seize the moment. You don't know where life will take you. You don't know what you're meant to do. And the second piece of great advice is whenever possible, in a business negotiation, in a romantic relationship, when you're trying to discipline your children, in any exchange, do your best to try and understand what's most important to the other person. That is to say, try as much as you can to walk in their shoes or or have empathy for their experience. Because in a good negotiation, for example, nobody gets 100% of what they want. But you also don't want to get everything you want and give that other person nothing because, okay, you've got all the cards, but you're going to be dealing with somebody who's unhappy and who doesn't feel like they got a fair deal. And that kind of person does not make a good business partner, a good employee, a good network executive, you know? Right. You have to understand that everything's a give and take. And that's what I've realized most in my career doing, you know, a million and one things for the last 20 years. But the worst piece of advice, which I hear all the time, especially given to young actors, is don't give up on your dream. You know, don't, don't, don't give up. And sometimes you got to change course. You know, listen, if you're a trust fund kid and your family will fund whatever dream you want to pursue, that's great. But that is not really the reality for most people. Listen, I was a theater major. I thought I was going to be an actor. And, you know, at some point there was a moment in my late 20s, early 30s, where I was making most of my living as an actor, but I was still writing for magazines like Harper's Bazaar and New York Times and stuff. And I was still, you know, modeling occasionally because the money was good when I could get it. And then I had done, you know, this cookbook and then the cooking show. And so all of those things together made my living. 
But if I had turned down that cookbook deal, if I had turned down that first show on the Food Network because I wanted to be a big, serious actor, like, who knows how my life would have turned. So I always tell people, like, try to pick a career where you can make a decent living doing something that you genuinely love. Now, you may want to be an actor, but you also may be really, really good at gardening. You may have some miraculous green thumb. Maybe, maybe that's acting is not your calling. Maybe you're going to be like the most kick-ass, sought-after, she-she landscape artist. You don't know. But you have to be open to that possibility. Right. And for me, I didn't even have access to a lot of the auditions that my girlfriends who were white had because they didn't see me like that. You know, I feel just as American as anybody else because I've grown up here since I was four. But the world didn't see me like that. This goes back to what you were talking to me about before. The world saw me as exotic, you know. Well, exotic to whom? Right. And that's changing a lot. That's much better. But, you know, it's still really hard. I mean, it's hard for women, even if you are, you know, Caucasian and blonde haired and blue eyed. It's just difficult. When I had uh, black hair for a while, this is like total white girl experience. (laughs) I would go out for fewer parts, but more intelligent. Yeah. And And I didn't get a lot of them. My sweet spot was bleach blonde stupidity. (laughs) Were there any books that made an impact when you were younger? Maybe at age like 14 or 16 or as an adult? I remember reading The Outsiders by S.C. Hinton when I was in eighth or ninth grade. And I remember that really taking my breath away. I remember, you know, some of the most beautiful writing I found is, you know, from Joan Didion. She, you know, played as it lays and other books by her. I love Mary Carr. I mean, that I read as an adult, but The Liars Club, I think, is a really extraordinary book. So is uh, Bastard Out of Carolina. Oh, yeah. That was such a good book. I got to read that again. Yeah. Also, like, Barbara Kingsolver. um, Yeah. You know, The Bean Trees. Those books I really, really loved. I also really love like Joseph Conrad. Those kept me riveted because the writing was so magical in them and so kind of lyrical, but ominous. And so I had a wonderful teacher in high school. I had many wonderful teachers, but I had one teacher in particular, Mr. Russell Smith, who was my AP English teacher. And he was fantastic. And I remember I wrote this essay and I compared F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby to Dallas and Dynasty because I was saying, yeah, I was saying like I couldn't, I couldn't relate to it because I, you know, here I am sitting in the Hampton saying this, but like at the time, you know, you know, I was like, I can't relate to like beach parties and East Egg and West Egg, like in the Roaring Twenties. I guess what I was saying without saying is these are white people problems. But, yeah. You know, and he gave me an A minus and I was really pissed. And so I was like, why? What, what's with the minus? And he's like, well, you didn't do the assignment I gave you. He said, I think your point is valid and your essay is interesting, but you got to do your homework first to write the essay you were supposed to. And he was constantly like annoying me by like handing me things. He handed me Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. And I was like, why do I have to read this? No one else is having to read this. He's like, because I want you to read it. 
he's sadly passed away now, but he really cared. And also I had Mrs. Henninger. I was in regular English and, you know, I had had that car accident my freshman year in high school. And so I missed a ton of school. So she didn't want me to fail. And she said, why don't you just write a bunch of like extra credit essays? And those can serve for like, you know, the midterm and things like that that I had missed. And I I remember I wrote her three sort of op-ed type essays and she read them and and she said, you don't belong in this class. And she moved me up to honors English. and, And that's how, you know, I got in that program. But she was great. Like, otherwise I would have just like floundered and been with the, you know, with the program that they all assumed I was in. That's amazing. Yeah. So I had, I had very pivotal people in my life who really spurned a love of reading. You know, my grandfather also was a very well-read person. He loved, loved books. And I'm a very slow reader. And I now think that I was probably, you know, dyslexic, but was never diagnosed with it. And, and I read so slowly, it's embarrassing. Like I can't share a newspaper with anybody because they're always done in half the time I'm done. And then they're like all impatient on me, you know? So, Palma, what makes you laugh? My mom makes me laugh inadvertently. <laughs> Why? Um, because like, she's such a sweet little woman. And now she's like, whenever I go to her with a problem, you know, she's getting older. I mean, I'm going to be 50 and she's going to be 76. She'll say stuff like, just pray on it. And I'm like, that is really not helpful, mom. (laughs) You know, so my daughter's really funny. I always gravitate towards funny people for friends. So a lot, you know, a couple of my friends are comedians or writers. And so they make me laugh. Like I, I will fuck a garbage can if I think it's funny. Like I, you know, that to me is the most attractive quality in any human being. And so I, I look for people to make me laugh. I love the writing in, in, in work like Frasier, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. back and forth tennis match that happens. I love that. I really, really appreciate those kind of things. I just, I love humor too, but it has to be quick still, like quick-witted, you know? Yeah. Padma, what is a trait you dislike in others? Carelessness. (laughs) I know that's such like a boring answer, but I find that we often don't care enough to do something thoroughly, to investigate something thoroughly, to think before we speak, to leave the room as we found it for the next person. To me, carelessness is the opposite of empathy, which is to me also the best trait in people. Can you tell the difference when a dish that you're judging on Top Chef has been made with care and love and maybe one that is technically superior but lacking the same care? Yeah, of course. So you know, you can see something that's technically really well done. You know, the chopping is is on point. That means that every piece is equal to the other piece. It's not sloppy. It almost looks like it's been cut by machine. And the meat is cooked perfectly and it's seasoned perfectly. It's not too salty. It's not too bland, but there's no soul. You know, that can be the case too. Somebody can be super careful, but just not have a sense of taste or have that palate to realize that all of the skill and of execution that they're bringing to this dish only serves the creativity of their palate. 
And so other times, you know, you'll have dishes where you can tell the cook isn't as experienced, but everything tastes really good. It's just messy. And like the cuts aren't equal and maybe it's burnt on an edge, but man, that sauce makes you want to lick your fingers. So what do you do with that? You know, you give them both very specific feedback, but at the end of the day, it's a professional competition. And the show is so hugely popular within the food industry that we attract such a high level of talent. So, you know, usually there's several people who, have both the creativity and the execution and the heart and soul. You know, when you see sloppy work on Top Chef, it's because time got away from them, especially in the last, you know, few years. Maybe there were a couple of clunkers when we first started, but now the the show's audition process weeds those out naturally because there's such a big group of people that want to be on it. In fact, a lot of restaurateurs or owners will give their chefs paid leave to be on Top Chef because it's such good publicity for their restaurant. Of course. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I've been watching, out of weird comfort, these YouTube videos about, like, cruises and train rides and things that feel like contained space, but yet they're going someplace and it doesn't even matter. Anyway, (laughs) it, like, calms my brain. So I was watching this thing, or like a cruise, whatever, and they were showing plates of the the food, and I was noticing like how how many garnishes and flourishes there were to a dish, you know, whether it's a chocolate curl. Mm-hmm. Or, but I was thinking about the elitism of the aesthetic mm-hmm. because it feels like an acknowledgement of wealth and fanciness in an unnecessary way sometimes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, look, there are restaurants that are certainly guilty of that, but they make a shit ton of money, you know, because the diner feels special because again, somebody has taken the care to mold that carrot into a dragon or whatever, you know, whatever. Right, right. And that, and it's funny because in the Thai episode, I don't think it's in the final cut, but I remember cooking with Saipin who is the chef and owner of Lotus of Siam. And if you're ever in Vegas, go to that restaurant. It's the best Thai food I've ever had. I will. You know, her particular story is that she was from the village and she had nine siblings or something. She had several siblings. And then she was found in a market and brought into work as kitchen help in the house of a very wealthy aristocratic family. And then the boy in that family fell in love with her. And he went off to college and he wrote back to her saying, I want to marry you and all this stuff. And she said, they'll never agree. I can't do it. I can't do it. And so she would take those letters and show his father right away. This is her life story. And because she was young and sweet, the grandmother of that household made her her caretaker. And so she was responsible for taking care of the grandma, but also cooking. And that grandma, that aristocratic grandma, happened to be an amazing cook of royal cuisine. So Saipin learned the peasant village food 
you know, of her part of the country. And then she learned the very royal and aristocratic cuisine as well. And she blends these two in her cooking, which is why it's so delicious and amazing. And I asked her, I said, what is the difference between the two types of cuisine? And she said, just the presentation. There's no other difference. Interesting. Did she say it like like it was a secret? Or is it just like this should be factual knowledge that everybody should? No, I mean, I think she just, she just, you know, she thought about my question. Matter of factly answered it because I don't think anyone had ever put it to her that way. And as, as a foreigner, you know, as a non-Thai person, I saw some similarities in different dishes. So just out of intellectual curiosity, I wanted to know mm-hmm. because that to me seemed the secret of her success that she had both these bodies of knowledge. And her food also is very beautiful and looks lovely and is different than, you know, the Thai takeout that I get on a Thursday night with Krishna, you know, at home, you know, biked to me and delivered. So she was saying that that's the case. I think there's room in the restaurant industry, especially now with so many restaurants closing due to COVID and so many people out of work in that industry for every type of food and every level of food. But, you know, to me, honestly, if I was in LA and you said, all right, let's go hang out and let's go eat. And you gave me a choice of going to a really great restaurant that, you know, we could only get a reservation to because it was you or me and it was really fancy and it was expensive and there were white tablecloths. Or we could go to the food trucks that you've loved in Venice. I would say we're definitely going to the food trucks. Definitely. (laughs) I love it. Because that's the kind of food that I grew up with. You know, my mom and I couldn't afford to go to these fancy restaurants. So until I became a model after college and went, you know, traveling around the world and eating at some of these places, I did not grow up eating that way. And it's not how most of the human race eats. And it's not the food that's interesting to me. Like the trends don't come from there. The trends come the bottom and trickle up. Right. This is not on my list, but I did want to ask you, what food requires the fewest ingredients, but the most skill? And I asked that question, having attempted to make bread and pasta (laughs) or even like a good omelet, like these things that seem simple in a cookbook because they truly only have like four ingredients, but just for whatever reason, the magic isn't there because I'm not skilled enough. I don't know the feel of something. My mom makes great bread and she always talks about the karma of bread. And oh, how really? she can <laughs> Yeah, and how she can feel like if it's gonna be great and how like and she nurtures it just just by mm-hmm. looking at it. I don't have that relationship. No, your mom is actually hitting on something. You know, in India, in Tamil, which is the South Indian language that is my mother tongue, they have a saying that says her hand has an aroma to it. And that is the touch of a good cook. You know, that is that is what your mom's talking about. She really has, you know, and I mean this in the in the in a good way. Like she has a sensorial hedonistic relationship to the material she's baking with. How beautiful. How beautifully put. <laughs> you know, it seems to me like people cook with their minds, but it's sort of like painting. You know, you paint with your fingers and paints, but you really paint with your eye. In food, you really paint with all of your senses. You really cook with your eyes, yes, but also your sense of touch. 
I mean, sometimes when I do these cooking videos on Instagram, I'm always afraid that people are going to get grossed out because I've always got my hands in everything. It's how I grew up cooking in, you know, in America, but also in my grandma's house in India. But I can feel when something is done. I can look and tell by the color whether it needs to cook more. I can tell whether a spice is burning by how frequent the rhythm of the popping is in the oil. I can listen for that. And so cooking is a very sensual experience, you know? And I think the further you're disconnected from that sensorial, visceral experience of cooking with your body, with your sense of smell and taste and, and sound, that is when cooking becomes harder because then you're just relying on measurements and instructions. But, you know, we live in an organic, movable world. So if you're baking in Aspen, you know, things bake in different ways in that altitude. And so there's no way that you can know that unless you've read it or have someone in your family who, who's a good baker and has been to high altitudes. So things are hard when you don't have any connection to them, not only an emotional or intellectual connection, but also a physical connection to them. I'm a firm believer that anyone can cook. Anybody can cook, you know, like that guy in Ratatouille says. Whenever people tell me, like, I can't cook, I will say, I will teach you how to cook. I just need a couple of hours and not a couple of days. But I'm, I'm convinced. I love in, in Taste the Nation that scene where you're in with, with the corn, the blue corn, and you're like, what do you say? You describe it as... It feels so good. Yeah, I, I think that tactile sense is something that I don't necessarily have. And my mom, she knows when her yeast is is working well. It's pretty remarkable. But she knows because of experience. And I bet the reason you don't have experience is because your mom is such a good baker. Like that, oh. I noticed that a lot. You know, like my mom is a borderline hoarder. And I am like OCD about keeping things neat and orderly. You know, I know that sooner or later I won't be able to take it. So I keep everything as relatively clean as I can. It's a reaction, right? So probably you never had to learn that skill because your mom was a great baker and you didn't need to flex that muscle, but it's there. Oh, I hope so. Okay, wait, here's a more difficult question, maybe. What's a trait you dislike in yourself? And I'm always 15 minutes late. <laughs> oh, really? You were on time. You were before I was here. I know, but that's because I didn't have to go anywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's just life, you know, also like meetings go longer and I don't want to cut someone off and be rude. So then that backs me up. Shit. No, you're this- not. Don't okay. worry. You're fine. <laughs> and I also wish I didn't snack so much. I consume most of my calories after 10 p.m. And if I didn't eat as much, I wouldn't have to exercise as much. And I have whole second dinners on a regular basis. I love that. I wish I had better discipline about how much food I'm consuming. Now I'm talking about like when I'm not consuming 8,000 calories a day for Top Chef. I'm talking about in my private life. I get that though. It's like the time you can relax during a day and you're not Mm -hmm. trying to rapidly shove something in your mouth. You can actually enjoy food and enjoy like a peaceful minute. That makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. To whom would you most like to apologize and why? That's such a good question. Personally, I've been kind of waiting to answer this on the podcast myself because, well, because it feels like there's definitely a few, but also because it feels so vulnerable. 
And I might not be ready to apologize to some of the people on my list. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't even remember her last name, but she was a friend of mine freshman year. Her name was Nicole. She was very beautiful. I'm sure she's still very beautiful. And I used a term, a racial slur, that I shouldn't have to describe something. It wasn't that I was calling her that, but I was using it to describe something. And the moment I said it, I winced, but I didn't have the courage to apologize to her then. And I still think about it all the time. If I knew her last name, I would try to track her down and, you know, apologize to her now because it bothers me enough that I think about it a lot. And I think I was just kind of repeating what had been done to me to her in like a passive aggressive way and it was wrong and I knew it was wrong when it came out of my mouth and I shouldn't have said it you know yeah hopefully we can use these things to grow the fact that some of these hurtful things are still haunting us hopefully means that there's been a lot of digestion Mm -hmm. within ourselves and hopefully we can you know make sure that our children are better informed or you know, don't say painful things. It's also one of the reasons that I wanted to do Taste the Nation because I thought it was an opportunity for me to make some of these communities more approachable to a larger public. And, you know, these people that don't believe in immigration and stuff, I don't want to just get on my soapbox overtly and be like, you know, Republicans bad and liberals good and all that stuff. That doesn't interest me, which is why we have Maynard on there, you know, as well, because I wanted to at least be as balanced as I knew how. But I think that, like, we've stopped listening to each other. We've stopped admitting when we're wrong. We've stopped dealing with our shame so that we can overcome it. And so we hide it or we, you know, deny the thing that we've done that gives us shame. And I'm hoping that if I have one hope with Chase the Nation, it's that it inspires curiosity in people to get to know their neighbors. Like if there's a Thai family that moved in down the street or a Nigerian kid that comes to your kid's class in the middle of the year, I'm hoping that seeing a program like this will make you more curious about people who don't look like you, but who are like you because they too want to take care of their kids and have a happy life and just be peaceful and go about, you know, finding their own comforts and dreams. And, you know, just because we speak different languages or eat different foods, that that is a universal value and that it's okay to make friends with people who don't look like you. They're not here to steal your house or take your job away. It's like people are afraid to re-examine their beliefs or how they describe themselves. They're afraid to be wrong. Yeah, I'm always suspicious of people who don't regret anything or who say, I mean, that like they think exactly the same way that they thought when they were 16 or 26 or whatever as they do now. It's just foolish. You know? And I mean, there's things that I look at from when I was in my 20s that I'm like, what the hell was I thinking, you know? But it's, it's the process of becoming who you're going to be, you know? You're going you're gonna to say and do some dumb things. We all have. Right. I think it's a lack of introspection in a lot of cases. And it is insecurity to, you know, yeah. expose yourself to new ideas and think that you could have been wrong all along. 
for instance, you know, I love my grandparents. I'm so close to them. They're like, they're actually like parents to me. My grandfather's passed now, but you know, but I can see now as an adult, like my grandfather was racist. There's huge color prejudice in India and caste prejudice. And he, he definitely was guilty of that. My grandma too, like, I don't think she cares now, but you know, when I was growing up, she wouldn't let me go out and play in the sun because she thought I would get too black. You know, she was like, why are you going out before 4.30 and why don't you have your umbrella? You know, it wasn't because it was raining. It was because she thought my skin was going to darken in the heat of the Indian sun. Right. What haven't you taken the time to learn about? Lots of things. I wish I could swim better. I wish I knew how to ski. I wish I knew how to play tennis. I wish I didn't need another member of my staff to do anything on the computer except for email. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) I wish I remembered how to change the oil in a car that I learned when I was 16 and wouldn't even know how to find a dipstick now. I wish I was more self-sufficient in those kind of practical things, you know, but the swimming is a big one. Like I hate the beach, but here I am in the beach house and I'm just always in this writing room that you see, you know, tapping away. I'm either reading or writing. And it's not because I'm too nerdy and posh to be, you know, wasting my time doing leisure activities. It's because I don't know how to swim and I'm really klutzy. So, (laughs) I'm with you on that. I I don't, probably like most people, I don't love to do things I'm not great at. Mm -hmm. And swimming, I feel very out of control, especially in the ocean. Yeah, I'm scared. (laughs) What is frustrating is that it feels like there's not enough time. And I also feel a little bit too old to um, confront everything that, you know, that... I don't feel great at that I would like to to be good at. <laughs> well, I feel like a fool. I feel like a klutz. Like mm-hmm. I went on a dumb bike ride because I wanted our family to do something all together. And I skinned my knee so badly. And I've got this big old black mark. It's actually purple on my knee. And it took me years to get rid of my drunk girl legs. Like I've always been classy. I've always fallen. It's because I have very little feet compared to my height. I'm not proportionate at all. I have a size eight foot, but I'm five, nine. And I should probably have a size nine or something. So I'm like a flagpole. I'm not very solid, you know. Can you dance? I mean, I'm a good dancer. I love to dance. All right. All right. And I'm very happy that Krishna got my hips. Nice. Okay. Uh, Who, living or dead, would you invite to your dream dinner party? Muhammad Ali, Dorothy Parker, Lenny Bruce, and Clark Gable. (laughs) Oh, all right. All right. In one word, how would you like to be remembered? Toss-up between kind and smart. Do you think your relationship with how people perceive you in terms of your intelligence, has that been a weight in your life? And I say this because I've made a living off of playing dumb characters. <laughs> it takes a smart person to do that. You know, it's not, that's not an accident. Thanks, Padma. I think early on in my career, especially as it relates to Top Chef, I felt a huge amount of imposter syndrome. I thought someone was going to find out that, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about because I never worked in a restaurant or on the line. And, you know, I never went to culinary school. So I, I did feel insecure about people not 
taking me seriously. Also because of what I did for a living. You know, I was a model for so long and I went to college before I started modeling, thank God, because my mom made me. But, you know, people didn't really know that. And even if I have a college degree, so what? I think I felt an extraordinary amount of guilt is the truth because you know, there were people in my family with graduate degrees who were genuinely brilliant, who made a fraction of what I did for basically standing around in a bathing suit or lingerie. So I had a huge chip on my shoulder about that. I don't anymore because I think my writing has spoken for itself. And I like to think I have enough humility to you know, honestly admit when I don't know something because I know that that's the trick to finding out about it rather than pretending. So I don't feel that anymore, but I did feel that even up until six or seven years ago. Well, there's nothing irrational about a degree of defensiveness because we get that. We overhear somebody being like, oh yeah, Anna's still in hair and makeup. Or like, I don't know, there's like something wrong with her bra or or just the little infiltrations. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. It's like a trivializing of my needs. Yeah. So therefore, part of the reaction is like, no, no, wait, I want to show you guys that I'm a value, that I'm here for a, a good reason and that I can contribute. I don't mean to speak for you, Padma, but I think that that's, that's where my defensiveness came from. And it is dissipating as I get older, for sure. Partly because I'm exhausted. <laughs> well, I think it's also because, you know, as women in entertainment, you are expected to look one way and you do get objectified and your physical appearance and attractiveness, regardless of what role you're playing, is a major factor in how much you are hired. Like that is just the fucking truth. I wish it weren't. And there are certainly glorious exemptions to that rule. But, you know, you have to worry about your bra. And I bet whoever your male counterpart is on whatever show or movie you're doing, if they're male, are not going through two hours of hair and makeup. You know, they're probably going through half an hour of makeup and they probably do have makeup, but it doesn't look like they have makeup, you know? Right. There's so much more expected of us. And then we get ridiculed for caring about that stuff. I don't care if I look beautiful. I mean, I do because I'm vain, but like, You know, I look a certain way on Top Chef for a very specific economic reason, you know, to keep the show fresh, to keep it exciting, to keep it glamorous because we're going to fancy restaurants and everyone else except for Gail and I are in either chef coats or a suit and tie. So we want to make it enticing visually. Television is a visual medium, but I can feel the eye rolling sometimes. And now I just don't care. (laughs) I love that. Padma, when you resume filming Taste the Nation, how do you feel about bringing along an actress to, you know, help taste things? Sure. You can come on a ride along with me. Yeah, I want to do a ride along with you. That'd be awesome. (laughs) What was your favorite episode to shoot? Or, Or what surprised you maybe the most? The German episode surprised me the most. You know, that was kind of a fun episode that didn't have like a lot of the heaviness of some of the other episodes we do. But I really learned a lot. Like I learned that there were two very popular, successful German language newspapers in the 20s in Milwaukee. I learned that you could put your child in the Milwaukee public school and have them go learn all of their subjects in German, like not as a second language, as a German immersion program. And then with with both of the world wars, nobody wanted to identify as German. So they, you know, 
painted over all their German signs, all that stuff. I learned that the pH of the water in Milwaukee is very similar to the lake in Munich, which is why beer culture proliferated so well. Oh, interesting. But the most important episode for me was the African-American episode. We shot the Gullah Geechee community in South Carolina and the Sea Islands, specifically St. Helena. And that was a very gratifying episode to me because, you know, while obviously African-Americans aren't considered immigrants, they are the product and descendants of forced migration. And we never look at their cuisine independent of their attachment to white colonialists. And so I wanted to look at that and place African-American food in its own ancestry because it's a big part of our culture and we're benefiting from it now. Like most people don't realize that many enslaved people were brought here from certain West African countries because of their specialized knowledge in rice cultivation. So you know, they weren't just like random labor. They were brought here because they had a body of language that the white folks who were buying and selling them did not. It is the engine that fueled the economy, especially in the South. And the Northerners are not, you know, free from that stain because there were insurance companies in New York who you could insure your slaves like you insured your house or, you know, now your car. So I learned all this stuff in the, in the research of it. And I was really happy to be able to do the African-American episode in, in that part of the world because Gulagichi culture is very well preserved because they hadn't built bridges. I've heard the term Gulagichi, but can you tell me what it refers to or, or what it means? Well, it's just all the African-American people who are descendants of enslaved people who came to the Carolinas and Georgia specifically are called Gullah Geechee. It, that name, it comes from the African language and the African tribes, uh, depending on which scholar you talk to. And, you know, 40% of America's enslaved labor came through the port of Charleston. And so it was the first stop for a lot of African enslaved people when they first got here. So because they didn't build bridges to these sea islands until the 50s, that culture was preserved, the Gullah Geechee language, which is actually an amalgamation of different African languages and dialects. That's why we go there and we look at red rice, because when you look at the dish, the southern dish of red rice, you can see that it's so clearly the descendant of jollof rice from Nigeria. Huh. And so I wanted to look at that because we never think about African-American food on its own. You know, we think about soul food. Well, what does that mean? That's like just this general term or Southern food. And, you know, most of Southern food, it can be argued, was actually made by African-Americans. It's really exciting to talk about your show during this time. Thank you. Because it does give me, it gives me moments of hope, you know, because I, I think that your mission to open up dialogue through talking about food and this broader picture. Well, that's what I wanted to do. Also, it's a lot of fun. Like, it will make you hungry. It will make you have the munchies without ever smoking anything because <laughs> the food, the cinematography is very purposeful. You know, I wanted a lot of food porn in there, and I certainly have experience from years and years of doing food television to know how to do that. Yeah. I hope that it's really entertaining 
and then that you come away having a good time, but really learning a lot that starts conversations at people's dinner tables. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Padma, it's such a good show. It really is. I love it that you're speaking to this big, broad issue, which is the idea of creating community that that appreciates each other and how we can grow and learn. Thank you, Padma. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Padma. Bye.